0: Hello, welcome to the Lit English, English Lit Podcast. We are going to look at the last two scenes of Act 4 of Hamlet today. Act 4, scene 6, Act 4, scene 7. Act 4, scene 6 is very short. It's uh, simply um, Horatio reading a letter that Hamlet has written to him, essentially saying, I'm coming back. And... Then, Act 4, Scene 7 is a little bit longer. Two really important things happen here. Um, first of all, we see how Claudius is gets Laertes onto his side through deception and flattery. And then we also have the moment where Gertrude reports Ophelia's death. So again, a scene of kind of fluctuating emotions, a scene of significant shifts, and... We are building, building, building until the final scene, scenes, because we are actually only two scenes away from the end of the play. If you're following along with the David Tennant BBC film version of Hamlet, we are starting at, line, at hour 2 minutes 29 2 hours 29 minutes and 45 seconds through to two minutes 34 two hours 34 minutes and 46 seconds it does not include all of the parts as they are in the text anyway i'm excited that you're along with me um, get your books ready and let's do this A lot of people think that Hamlet, when he comes back from his time at sea, has changed. And while I think it's not immediately obvious, and I think it's possibly even debatable at times, it's this letter that offers the first insight into this, or this first hint that Hamlet has changed. Um you know, you think about Hamlet, you think about if he were to write to Horatio, what kind of a letter it would be. I uh, think about the soliloquies that he's, that we've heard from him. Think about the monologues he's given. And Hamlet's letter to Horatio is even energetic. It's a little bit upbeat. It's even optimistic, particularly if you look at the last few lines. There's a kind of dark, but certainly humorous allusion to the fate of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. We'll we'll find out more about them, but of course you know we know, well you should know, that that Hamlet has kind of sent them to their deaths and we'll find out how he did that in, in Act 5, Scene 1, sorry Act 5, Scene 2, but this is the first real opportunity we have to see that Hamlet, or a sign that Hamlet has possibly changed. Ultimately, though, Act 4, Scene 6, is, it's a scene of dramatic expediency, right? We need Hamlet to come back. We need it done quickly. Letters, messengers sometimes are a really easy way to do this, especially in Shakespeare's time when a stage would not be able to handle a storm or a shipwreck or a large battle. So that's, that's really how this fits in. Um, so here's Hamlet's letter. He's on his way back, and he will send a second letter to Claudius, telling him that he's on his way back as well. And we'll see how Claudius responds to that in just a minute. Between the beginning of the scene and the last page or so when Gertrude comes in and tells everyone about Ophelia's death is quite a prolonged scene where we see Claudius take control of the situation with Laertes. So remember, Laertes in the previous scene had come in furious, absolutely ready to kill Claudius, ready ready to possibly even usurp the throne. And Claudius is just kind of able to keep him at arm's length. Literally, right? Because Gertrude is holding him back. Over the course of this scene, we see the power dynamic shift. And we learn that Claudius is a masterful manipulator and we see that Laertes is a willing follower he's so keen to act that he's willing to essentially believe what Claudius has to tell him and we enter the scene in the middle of a conversation where Claudius seems to have spoken at length with Laertes and he begins the scene with 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 ethos right with with trying to show that he is trustworthy by the way those of you who are who have been um, you know, going through high school, pathos, logos, ethos, this scene has it all. And I think uh, Claudius really goes through the whole range of skills required to persuade someone um, in this scene. So look out for them. And right away, right now must your conscience my acquittance seal and you must put me in your heart for friend. So right away, Claudius is trying to help Laertes see or to shape the narrative of how Laertes sees him. And he actually delivers several lies. Um, even he actually admits they might sound far-fetched, but he says, you know what, this is what happened. Lines 4-5, he he claims that Hamlet had tried to kill him, which ironically is not that far from the truth, but Claudius has no sense that that's the case, right? He's, he's clearly lied to Laertes. Laertes asks him why, and, and Claudius replies that, what, what sorry, why he didn't act against him, right, that's treason, that's, that's a, trying to kill you, and he says the queen, his mother, lives almost by his looks, in other words, Hamlet looks so much like his mother, I, I couldn't do this, okay, um, he sort of tells the truth about the fact that Hamlet is popular, um, <clears throat> But Laertes is is questioning, and and cleverly, Claudius says, look, this might seem far-fetched to you, but... So he kind of anticipates Laertes' arguments. Um, Line 33, it's interesting to point out that, again, we see that word dull. Okay, Um, you must not think, says the king, that we are made of stuff so flat and dull that we can let our beard be shook with danger and think it past time. In other words, we are not the kind of people who... Um, just let things happen, right? Claudia says, you'd have to be dimwitted not to act when provoked like this. And again, that kind of makes us remember Hamlet. It makes us remember what Hamlet has not done. And in fact, throughout this conversation, we're going to see in a few minutes, the parallel between Laertes and Hamlet is quite stark and startling. And when the letter arrives, um, I love it when Hamlet says, um, I am, you shall know I am set naked on your kingdom. And the king is like, what, naked? Like, what is this? Um, But he uses the letter from Hamlet as a catalyst to kind of exploit this new alliance with Laertes. Although I do wonder how he must have felt when he saw and read the letter. I mean, remember, he assumes, he thinks that Hamlet is dead. He hopes that Hamlet is dead. And he gets a letter from Hamlet saying, I'm coming back. And, And I think above all, he realizes he is going to have to act. And I think that's what precipitates this plan that that Claudius and Laertes come up with. Um, you know, it's probable that Claudius now realizes that Hamlet realizes what Claudius has done, that Claudius has arranged to have him killed, but has failed. But Claudius, if he's really concerned, doesn't show it, and he shows real cunning by stoking Laertes' anger, and then finally hooking him into his plan. Right. He says, line 66, will you be ruled by me? Right. And and he says, I'll help you. And line 69, to thine own peace. Line 76, you know, whatever happens, we'll call it an accident. right? Even his mother shall uncharge the practice. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll do something that will even make it seem like like his mother won't even have anything to complain about. And what we see very quickly is that Laertes is the perfect revenge candidate, right? Unlike Hamlet, similar to Fortinbras, but much more so. Laertes is uncomplicated. The questions that he asks, the king, are very direct, very kind of direct, okay? Um, what part is that, my lord, he says. Um, you know, he asks questions that are very kind of to the point. He's but but at the same time, there's no real deliberation. Pretty rash. You know, he, he doesn't really think carefully what Claudius is telling him. And there's a lot of that doesn't really make sense. But he is so vengeful that he is ready to act. Um, line 61, he says, It warms the very sickness of my heart that I shall live and tell him, Hamlet, to the teeth. Thus did thou. In other words, I'm going to kill him and be able to say to Hamlet, Yeah, this is what you did. Um, There's that sickness of my heart. That's kind of the third or fourth time we've seen that allusion to heart sickness, right? That that something inside is is wrong and diseased. And then even more um, extreme extremely, he says in line 144, when when the king says, what would you do to Hamlet? And Laertes says, I would cut his throat in the church, right? Even in a sanctuary, Right? a church was supposed to be a place where you could go and be protected. Even if you were a murderer, even if you'd done something horrible, you could not be arrested if you were in a church. And Laertes says, I am willing to go into a church to kill Hamlet. And of course, as we see what happens, Laertes will end up dying, you know, and, and it really illustrates the dangers of rushing in. And Laertes is very susceptible at the moment. He, you know, a lot of this is due to his high emotion. And we see that later on when his sister's death is reported, but he is very, very kind of ripe for Claudius's exploitation. Now, Claudius has used, has used ethos. He's used some pathos. He's used a lot of things. He's anticipated arguments. He's lied, but then he finally kind of delivers the, the kind of the two-on-two punch that really kind of gets Laertes on his side. One is flattery, and then two, just a lot of pathos and, and references to his father. So Claudius really flatters Laertes by using the story of Lamorde. And I'm assuming it, this must be a lie, right? So lamord is is a very famous um, swordsman very famous warrior. And basically the king says, this guy was an amazing warrior. And he said, you were a great swordsman. And I'm sure that that must be a lie. Um, and he then goes on to say this report of his did Hamlet so in venom with his envy that he could nothing do, but wish and beg your sudden coming o'er to play with you. doesn't mean play with you like, like, We'll play Lego. Players into to play at swords, have a sword fight, like like a sport. This would be swords, like not with with sharp points, but like you see in the Olympics. Um, La Morde, though, means literally means death, and so it's an interesting um, use of a name that evokes death. Of course, Laertes will die. Act five, scene one. We're going to see a lot more references to death. But this story, of course, uses ethos and pathos and it really appeals to Elerti's ego and his hatred of Hamlet. It's very, very clever. But the finding final winding up of the argument is is full of parallels to Hamlet. And and Claudius starts off by saying, Was your father dear to you? Or are you a face without a heart? In other words, you know. Are you just all talk, right? Do you just appear to be upset or are you willing to do something? And again, we think about Hamlet here. We could ask him the same question. Really? Was your father that dear to you? And he goes on to say this. Line 126. That I see in passages. Sorry. But now that I know love is begun by time and that I see in passages of proof, time qualifies the spark and fire of it. In other words, you can be angry, but you're going to have to prove this over time. There lives within the very flame of love a kind of wick or snuff that will abate it, and nothing is at a like goodness still. For goodness, growing to pleurisy, dies in his own too much. That we would do, we should do when we would. For this would changes and hath abatements and delays as many as there are tongues, our hands, our accidents. I mean, that totally sums up Hamlet's dilemma, his weakness, right? He says, I'm going to do this, but I won't. And Claudius says, you know what? When you say you're going to do something, you should do it quickly. Now, of course, it's in Claudius's interest that that Laertes should act quickly. He wants Laertes to do his dirty business for him. And he goes on to say this. Hamlet comes back. What would you undertake to show yourself indeed your father's son more than in words? And Laertes then says to cut his throat in the church And the king says, no place indeed should murder, sanctuarize. Revenge should have no bounds. Um, Two things to add there. When he says in the church, we're reminded in Act 3, Scene 3, how Hamlet actually spared Claudius because he was praying. He was in a church. Obviously not for the same reasons, but it's an interesting parallel there. But then also this revenge should have no bounds. Well, clearly it has bounds for Hamlet. Claudius has shown himself willing to act throughout. He's, he's dispatched the, the old king. He's, he's acted to keep himself in power, um, to put out kind of fires, to, to show democ- um, diplomacy. He is a master manipulator, and he shows that very clearly in this scene. Now it's time for a quick break. <laughs> So I thought today we'd take some time to look at what makes the perfect playlist for running or working out. Um, This one's one of my favourites, it's by Coldplay, it's called Adventure of a Lifetime. When I think about a perfect playlist, obviously you want something that's upbeat and energetic, but you don't want something too fast. I made the mistake of uh, trying to run to Billie Jean by Michael Jackson or something like that where the beat is far too fast. Um, you can actually get um, playlists that match the pace that you need, the cadence that you need for a certain mileage, pace, pace per mile. Um, but I listen to a lot of Coldplay when I run. Viva La Vida is probably one of my favorites. Sky Full of Stars, Hymn for the Weekend. This one's another one I enjoy. Um, it's perhaps not particularly energetic, but it's a good song. I usually listen to this at the beginning of a run and it puts me in the mood. Like I said, it doesn't have to have the kind of the heaviest beat to it, but really enjoy it. This is called Crest of Waves. <laughs> Now of course you can't have a good playlist without some of this band. This is The Killers, Um, I have quite a lot of songs by them, Um, Spaceman, When You Were Young, Human, but this one's probably my favourite, it's called Somebody Told Me. Now, I don't actually listen to that much music when I run. I typically will listen to a podcast or an audiobook. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows got me through my first marathon. Um, but typically, the second half, particularly of a race, I'll need some music to kind of pick me up and give me that jolt of adrenaline that I need. And so, my playlist is definitely designed to make me, to give me kind of that shot of adrenaline. Um, and this one does it about as well as any. Another band I listen to quite a lot when I run is called Switchfoot and they're a band that I actually really enjoy listening to a lot of the time. This one's called Rise Above It and I think what I really enjoy about Switchfoot is that their songs are very well written, very just great music, but their message is usually really uplifting and popular and makes me feel good as well as you know giving me that shot of adrenaline so yeah this is Rise Above It rise, cry, with the the curse, with the... This is a rather unusual switchfoot song not quite like their typical sound um, and this is called The Hardest Part, sorry, The Hardest Art. And again, I listen to a lot of Switchfoot, um, but this one uh, is something that gets me uh, certainly in the mood for running. And yeah, The Hardest Art. It's got the great line in, love is surrender is love is surrender. Wonderful lyrics. this song I remember distinctly running to on my very first half marathon it's by a band called whitest boy alive which I think is quite appropriate and this song is called 1517 and I love the opening lines hey now we just got started you can't end this now which is great when you're running Now, I think one thing that a good song has to have is an excellent beginning, and you can't get better than this. This is of course the iconic 80s rock band U2 and their song Pride in the name of love. And the beginning of a song is usually very, very important because it can really give you that extra shot of adrenaline and lift you up at the right moment. This song's great for going up hills, by the way. Now we're getting to some of the playlist songs that I might not necessarily listen to for pleasure, but I find very useful for working out or running. Um, There's a YouTube channel called Dude Perfect. It's a bunch of guys who make trick shots, live in Texas. My kids love watching them but the songs they have for their videos are usually really uplifting and energetic and exciting. This one's by Royal Taylor. It's called Ready, Ready, Set, Go. Now, this is kind of the electronica dance music that drives my wife absolutely crazy um, but this one I remember way back in college it's by a band called Chicane it's called Saltwater and uh, it's kind of old-school kind of uh, electronica and what it this song's about like eight minutes long but it builds up very gradually so you don't even notice it after a while um, and then it's kind of pauses and All of a sudden changes and you know kind of the mood becomes much more energetic and yeah these kind of songs i just really enjoy because they help you uh again just keep moving keep pushing and the drop on this one is uh fantastic so again this is saltwater by chicane So, yeah, I am definitely a sucker for electronic dance hits that have a fantastic drop. Um, And this is a song called We Are Legends. And, again, I heard it on a Dude Perfect video, and I don't even know who the artists are. But, yeah, this song has a great drop. Well, that was my, I think, 10 songs um, that I enjoy running to working out to um i like to hear what are your songs that you like to listen to and maybe you can share those with me so that was my top 10 and uh let's uh here we are we are legends and let's let them take it out Welcome back to the Lit English, English Lit Podcast. Today we're looking at Hamlet, Act 4, Scene 6 and 7. Well, Gertrude's monologue, it's kind of her final monologue, one of her only monologues actually, um, is one of the most famous ones in the play, and it is the description of Gertrude's death. And it's important to point out that this is a description, just as, as... Horatio reading Hamlet's letter describe what had happened. Of course, this kind of death, drowning, would be a very difficult thing to do live on stage. So it's another description, not a live event, and it is a romantic description of death. This is a very sanitised um, description. It's it's bucolic description, almost again, almost romantic, and. The language that Gertrude uses throughout um, is of something that looks beautiful. And I wonder, again, is it significant that Gertrude gives this description, one woman to another, um, you know, one woman talking about another? Maybe she's doing this to spare Laertes' feelings. Who knows? The way that it's described, though, would su- seems to suggest that It was not Ophelia's fault, and we'll see that in a second. But initially, there's this very bucolic, romantic description, right? There is a willow, line 190, line 191, a glassy stream. There's a description of all the flowers, again, kind of an echo of the flowers that she handed out a couple of scenes back. Um, The brook is described as a weeping brook, line 201. When Ophelia falls in the water, she's described as mermaid-like, um, and then even the very end, it pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to a muddy death. Even that is a kind of a sanitised description of a very horrible moment. It's what's also significant is that this description is a little bit problematic. It describes that she's up in the tree, the branch breaks, and then she stays in the water singing, before gradually the 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 clothes getting so heavy and dragging her down well who saw this and never went to help her did Gertrude see this did someone else tell her this again there's a possibility that Gertrude is kind of making this sound a little bit more pleasant than it was maybe not suicide maybe a tragic accident to spare Laertes' feelings um she blames all things around her she brain she blames the branch okay um talks about uh um where is it that an envious sliver broke, right? And then she blames Ophelia's clothes, her garments heavy with their drink. Okay, so again, this this description doesn't quite match what would have probably been quite a horrible moment. I also, though, I do love Laertes's response. It's quite touching actually. He says, Too much of water hast thou, poor Ophelia And therefore, I forbid my tears. But then, and there's probably a pause here, and you can probably feel him wrestling this internal conflict. But then he does weep. He says, but yet it is our trick. Nature, her custom holds. In other words, I will still cry because it is custom to cry when someone dies. He can't stop himself from weeping. Uh, Let shame say what it will, he says. So it's quite a, a, a sad Moment, of course, and Laertes is again being pulled in all these directions. He comes back furious that his father has died. He then has Laertes manipulate him. He sees Ophelia mad, talks to Laertes some sorry, talks to Claudius some more, and then hears about his sister having died. So he's had a pretty traumatic few hours. And finally, at the very end of the scene. Laertes leaves and King says, let's follow Gertrude. Again, there's an opportunity for the two of them to talk, but they don't. Right away, Claudius follows Laertes. He said, how much had I to do to calm his rage? I'm not sure if that's completely true. Now, I now fear I, this will give it start again. Again, I think he's lying. I think he's using an excuse to get out and then just to keep an eye on Laertes to make sure that he doesn't do anything too rash because too much relies on him. He's relying on Laertes to do his dirty work for him. And it really completes this this picture of Claudius and Gertrude not being very close. But it also completes Claudius' image as the villain, right? He's preparing us, the audience, for Hamlet's death as a result of Claudius' treachery. One other thing I did want to point out, sorry. Um, Great, I'm, I'm big on the literary devices. The word drowned shows up several times, obviously to kind of emphasize this finality and unusual way that that Ophelia has died. Um, And Shakespeare does this twice. He uses the word drowned, repeats it over two separate lines and two separate characters. The first time, well, in 188 to 189, the first time it's announced, he uses the literary device of diacopy, which is when you say the word then say something else and then say the word again, again, like the name's Bond, James Bond, right? So your sister's drowned, Laertes, Laertes replies drowned, okay? And then it's the word is used is three times in a row, on line 210, last then she is drowned, the queen says drowned, drowned, that's a great example of epizuxis, where you repeat the same word multiple times. So I just wanted to add that, can't leave those literary devices alone, Certainly not the completely random ones. Thanks for joining me for the Lit English English Lit podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you along. I hope this was useful to you. And, as always, I want to end with a few thoughts and connections to kind of bring this scene to a close. In fact, bring this act to a close. Now, I know my students, when they're hearing about the description of Ophelia's death, are jumping up and down saying, oh, oh, i got it, failed baptism. Well done, yes, falling into water and not coming out as a great example of failed baptism. But Ophelia's death, This description is one of the most iconic and immortalized descriptions of death in 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 all of literature to be honest and it was made even more immortal by a 19th century painter called Sir John Everett Millay and he has a painting the hands in the Tate gallery in London that is very very famous I'm looking at it right now it's it's a picture of this young beautiful girl pale skin, looks like she's got red hair, she's lying in this, in the water, almost like like wearing a long dress, her face is above the water, arms are above the water, everything else is kind of, looks like she's kind of lying on her back, like we would often do in a swimming pool, (laughs) Um, there's flowers all around her, reeds and bushes, it's a beautiful, beautiful painting, it doesn't look like someone who's about to drown, I mean, the woman maybe looks a little bit in distress, but... That's kind of how we have seen Ophelia's death for all these years in, in, in kind of the kind of the, the literary world. And it's interesting because there are not that many deliberate drownings. I mean, there's a famous one in Thomas Hardy's Return of the Native. Um, there's one a the book I've just been reading, East of Eden by John Steinbeck, which if you have not read, you should um, the first wife of Cyrus Trask, he's kind of like the, the patriarch of of, this, of the family, drowns herself having impure thoughts. Um, one connection I'm sure you made is Desiree and Desiree's baby. And and the connection between Desiree and Ophelia, we've touched on this before, it's, it's quite compelling, right? Both of them are young women acting in kind of the only way that they see available to them, to act independently and to defiantly choose their own path. You know, regardless of how tragic that is, End is. Now, of course, just as Ophelia's death is a failed baptism, Hamlet's voyage has also served as a baptism of sorts. I mean, of course, he hasn't fallen into water, but he has traversed it, disappeared into it, so to speak, and returned. The irony, of course, is that he was initially sent away to kind of get better, right? A change of scenery, and the trip does seem to have changed him, and we'll see this in Act 5, Scene 1. But I want to focus a little bit on Claudius here, and like Hamlet's plans before him, Claudius's plan to kill Hamlet doesn't seem watertight, right? Laertes is going to... they're going to arrange a sword fight, Laertes is going to put poison on one sword, he's gonna make sure it's a sharp sword because typically they would have blunted points because you'd be hitting each other. He's gonna say, I'm gonna have a sword that's sharp and I'm gonna put poison on it. So all I have to do is prick him. And then the king says, okay, that's great. As a backup, we'll have a poisoned cup of wine. It's not a watertight plan, but he has managed to persuade Lurtes to do his dirty work for him. And again, we've talked about this before. Sometimes I think we feel like kind of throwing our hands up and saying, what a ridiculous plan. How is Leah, how is, sorry, how is Claudius ever going to get away with this? Why on earth would he do that? It doesn't make sense. Let's ask ourselves this question instead. What does this suggest about the character? And we've we've mentioned before, right, many of us have looked at times in our lives when we've done something and we thought, wait, what was I thinking then? So let's not be too harsh on Claudius, but let's think, or Shakespeare, but let's think about what does this suggest about his character? Well, I think it demonstrates that Claudius is getting increasingly desperate and more willing to take chances. He's already succeeded in spinning a story about the death of old Hamlet, and so he feels convinced that he could do the same again this time. And like many of us who are trying to hide or be secretive about shameful actions, the idea of being found out often precipitates more and more desperate measures. Now, the other side of it is that sometimes we convince ourselves that we're not going to be found out. And in our arrogance, we do things that are increasingly risky. Perhaps this is how Claudius feels. He's the king. He's untouchable. He's got away with everything so far. But I think we also need to consider, as good students of literature, how this plan helps Shakespeare develop the plot and create drama. Well, when we read and or we'll watch Act 5, Scene 2, we'll see this. The sword fight between Hamlet and Laertes is a moment of high drama and tension, and not least because we know about the plot. So in a sense, it's not what the plot is. It's just the fact that there is a plot. You'll see, trust me. In the meantime, we have one more scene to get to first, one of my favourites. There'll be skulls thrown about, leaping into graves, lots of pondering on the nature of death, and a special guest who has a special connection to Hamlet will be joining us. So until then, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, thanks for listening, see you next time.